Churches, uh, uh, the pastors, pastors and congregations get in, in partnership, and one model is ours, where a congregation does the the calling or says, "Hey, we would like you to come," and the, the pastor has a role in it. There are other models where it's much more sort of a top down from a higher higher church structure, and th- sort of this is a, a, maybe a point for us to say um, because different traditions, different ways, different different denominations of the Christian family tree handle pastoral transition differently it's worth doing a a little unpacking naming of terms and probably for folks who have spent any time at all in the life of the church you may well have lived through a change in pastoral leadership and wonder how do we how do we get there how does that happen and there are ways that it's like honestly there are ways that it's like any other change of job and there's ways that it's very very different there's ways for some where it feels like an arranged marriage and there's other places where it feels like the weirdness and awkwardness of dating um and there's ways where it's sort of both at the same time so we thought because of all that difference we might have a chance to get to talk both from our personal experiences as individuals who are pastors ourselves but also maybe what are some of the pros and cons or the, the upsides and downsides of the, of the different ways this happens, the different ways we all make soup in our traditions, um, and what does it mean for congregations, and what does it mean for us who all claim to be part of this big thing that God's doing, you know, the body of Christ, for all the different ways that we do it. I, I wonder if, if, just as a matter of laying our collective cards on the table, too, it would be helpful to name not only that we've got different uh, traditions represented here, um, but that each of us has had different experience with uh, lengths and kinds of calls that we've been in or appointments that we've been in in, in uh, church settings. And it might be helpful for folks who don't immediately already know our biographies <laughs> um, to, to hear a little bit about where each of us uh, comes to in this process. So I guess I'll start. Um, being a United Methodist, we are under what it's called an appointment system. And um, to kind of just lay out a very brief reader digest version of this, 
you've got kind of three levels of hierarchy in the, in the United Methodist Church. You've got bishops, district superintendents, and pastors. Bishops are over a large area. My bishop is over the western third of the Pennsylvania, the state of Pennsylvania. Um, my district superintendent is over Indiana and Jefferson counties and parts of Armstrong and another county, I forget what it is now. And then there's me, clergy. <laughs> um, all of us are all clergy. We're all reverends. Um, but it's just that that's the hierarchy. We start the bishops at the top, DS, and then pastor. Uh, I've been currently serving at Marion Center for, um, I'm in my fourth year, halfway through my fourth year. This is my second appointment. I spent two and a half years in Warren, uh, starting in January of 15 and running until June of 17. And then moved here in July of 17, and hopefully we'll be here for at least a few more years. So, so you've had the experience of going through multiple call, multiple appointments, rather. Yes. Yeah, forgive me. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Uh, you know what it's like to have been in something that lasted a, a few years and also to be in the midst of something that you don't know the end point of, and yes. that's, that's part of how your process works. Yes, we are appointed year by year, technically. Okay. Um, so you know, when people ask me, how long do you expect to be here? I'm like, well, I expect to be here until this June of 2021. Um, we are currently, honestly, in the, middle, in the midst of appointment season. Now that it's you know, February pushing into into March, like that's the high point of our appointment system when our bishop and her cabinet meet together and they they do arrangements and then and you know um, partner churches with pastors. Mm -hmm. So I don't believe I'm moving this year, mm -hmm. uh, especially with some of the positions my DS has asked me to be on on our district. Um, but it's not my DS's call. It's not. Fully my call. Like, my church has not asked for me to move. I have not asked for a move. Yeah. But if the bishop discerns that I need to be going elsewhere, well, then bishop says, jump high, say how high. Yeah. So, it, to, to, to help for folks who aren't familiar with this pr process, and maybe even for United Methodists who don't understand how their process works anyhow. Um, so, so, it sounds like um, if you walk into a church on Sunday in the United Methodist tradition, there's a pastor there. How'd they get there? Well, they're the bishop of that larger area at some point had said this person matched with this pastor and year by year they reevaluate as they take a look at the chart of all the possible congregations and fits and what kinds of things uh, to the extent that you know do they factor in as they consider things like should a person stay where they are or be moved or things how, how, how do they make that decision uh, so part of that I think I don't know all the ins and outs because I've never been a district superintendent and don't ever hope to be. <laughs> um, Bishop Cynthia, really don't want to be a DS. <laughs> um, but it, it's, you know, the church can ask for a move, the pastor can ask for a move. Um, and especially if both are asking for a move, then that's pretty likely that that person, that pastor is going to move and that church is going to be receiving a new pastor. Um, obviously retirement, you know, when somebody retires... That's a guarantee, like, in my district, we have 80, 90-some-odd pastors, and I think my DS has recently told me that um, there's probably about 12 or 13 guaranteed moves on our district, mm -hmm. and some of the, one of which is him, uh, because he's retiring this year, um, you know, or because of retirements. Others are because people just have asked to move. It's not necessarily, like... A lot of people say in the Methodist system, you know, once you've served so many years, then you get moved. Mm -hmm. And while that was the case many years ago, like, if I go back in the history of my current church, 
and I look back to the 1800s when we were just a little, you know, circuit church in a little cabin. Pastors lasted two, maybe three years, maybe. Uh, in more recent history of the church, we're, we've had some long pastorates, usually like 10, 11 years, mm-hmm. followed by a very short pastorate, about, you know, three or four years, and then mm-hmm. another long pastorate, and kind of this back and forth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it just, it's, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Um, again, most of which I don't know because my first appointment was a mid-year appointment starting in January. Like I said, we typically move in July. July mm-hmm. 1 is the start of new appointments. Um, but the pastor that served before me had actually left back in October um, in my first appointment. And I graduated in December, so they brought me in January 1. And honestly, I moved from there because... I went from being a provisional elder to an ordained elder, a full elder, and my pay went up. There's a pay, you know, a pay scale for the different levels mm-hmm, of pastors mm-hmm, in the United mm-hmm. Methodist Church, and and one of my churches could no longer afford that. Mm-hmm. So that's basically why I got moved. And we we knew that you know we knew that by November of the year before I moved. Mm-hmm. I don't expect when I move from this church to know when I'm going to move until like this time of year. Okay, okay. And, so. and that must bring its own set of anxieties to know that that phone call could happen at any time. So I have the, the phone numbers of several district superintendents in my phone, and when they call me this time of year, I always kind of brace myself. Uh, my own DS I'm not as concerned about because I, we have a really good working relationship, and um, but when one of the other DSs calls me, if they don't start off the conversation this time of year, this is not about an appointment. <laughs> I'm asking that question very quickly, like, okay, why are you calling me? Yeah, yeah. Um, because, yeah, it, it's a, you don't, you really don't ever know. Um, I've had colleagues that have told me, like, you know, that they, they had a gut feeling that this was the year that they were going to move, and so when the call came, that was not a surprise to them, and then others who said, I could have sworn I was staying for at least another year. And then they get the call and mm-hmm. they're going. So mm-hmm. it's it's a unique system. Um, there's a lot a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that, like I said, I don't know, don't want to know. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I like it in a lot of ways because um, there's, almost, it, there's a kind of guarantee but now that I'm fully ordained, like that, I will always have a place to go. Okay. Um, can I, can I ask to the extent that you're aware within your tradition? I mean, it, it, I think it's worth acknowledging for all of our different uh, denominational traditions. Somebody made a choice about how they were going to structure how to do things because there is variety, and the existence of other ways of doing things is makes it obvious that what our traditions have chosen is a choice, not it was required, you know, it's on the stone tablet, you must do it this way. So is that, so what do you understand to be, like, what are the pros, or what, what's the rationale, what's the thinking behind an approach that is an appointment where somebody says, this is where you will go, and the congregation, hey, this is who will be at your pastor. What, 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 what's the, the intent behind a model like that? Um... I don't know if I can actually speak to like the intent of it. I will say, for me, one of the pros is I don't feel like I interview well. Okay. And so to be in a process like yours where it's a call system where there's lots of interviews or in the Presbyterian Church where, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know that that would um, 
that I would work well with that kind of system personally. Sure. sure. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm guessing this is you know being Wesleyan. I'm guessing this is based off the Church of England. Okay. And the English, I don't know. I've never really delved into the history of sure. how we got to the point of where we're at with. I mean, I know Wesley ordained or commissioned. I don't know what the terminology was back then. Coke and Asbury as bishops, you know, at the Christmas mm -hmm. conference in the 1700s in the Americas, but like. I don't know, we're just kind of modeled after that, which I think is ultimately modeled after the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, so some of it's just a historical accident, like, well, this is the system we inherited, Wesleyans from the Anglicans, Anglicans from Roman Catholicism, Roman Catholicism from, well, you could say there are roots <laughs> in the, the early, early church, but even titles like bishop and elder have mm -hmm. kind of morphed over centuries. They don't mean what they originally meant, and pointy hats are not originally a part of the scene either. Um, can I ask, is, is any part, to the, to the best of your knowledge, any part of, of your tradition system connected in with the, the value of being itinerant, like the idea oh, of gosh, like, yeah. okay, so can you talk a little bit about that, because that seems an important part of the Wesleyan flavor. So that's one of the vows I took at my ordination, was the willingness to be itinerant. Um, you know, when I said earlier that when the bishop says, you know, you're moving, I, you know, basically the bishop saying, jump, and I ask how high, uh, I've been told by many, many colleagues, you get one good no in your career <laughs> to the bishop, and you better have a darn good reason behind it. Mm -hmm. Um... And so that's just kind of, you know, when I took my ordination vows, one of the, one of the things I, I vowed to do was to be itinerant. And what, for, for folks who, who don't immediately have a sense of what that, what does that mean to you? For me to be itinerant is, is to say that when the bishop calls me to move, okay. that I, I am trusting that the bishop and his or her cabinet, which is all the district superintendents, um, we have 10 of them in our, in our conference, have prayed and have discussed and have looked at churches and pastors and profiles and mm -hmm. and said, you know what, I think this church and this pastor are going to yeah. be a good fit. This pastor has the gifts and graces that this particular church needs, and so we're going to place them together. Yeah. Um, does it always work well? Not even of the time, probably, yeah. Mm -hmm. Occasionally do you get the flub? Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, if that's... and. That's not putting blame on anyone. Right. That could be a mishearing of the Holy Spirit, or that could just be... It could be a lot of things. Sure. Uh, and again, I'm not going to try to put blame on any one person or any one thing. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes, you know, things just don't work out. But so far for me, I have loved um, the three churches that I have served and, you know, had feel like they've been good matches mm -hmm. for my gifts and graces and what they have needed. and and their gifts and graces and what they've given back to me yeah. as well. Um, so. so that idea of, of being itinerant isn't just uh, like an obedience to I'll do whatever the bishop says, but in particular to the idea of place, of like yeah. you're called to serve the whole church that could be anywhere that, uh, that, that there's a need. And so instead of my allegiance is to this spot on the map, it's I'm willing to serve Christ and Christ's people wherever that is, mm -hmm. and if it's here, great, but I can also pick up my shingle and move somewhere else if that's where the need is. That, that's sort of the, the idea or the model. Yes. Okay. And so, I have a question yes, about yeah. that. So, uh, would it be possible for you to get a phone call and say that you've been appointed to a congregation in Nebraska? I was just going to guess. So, typically, we are appointed within our conference. So my conference is the Western Pennsylvania Conference of the United Methodist Church. As I said earlier, it's the western third of the state. Yeah. 
There are currently three conferences in Pennsylvania, Western PA, Susquehanna, which is basically Central PA and a little bit of Northeastern PA, and then Eastern PA, which is like the Philadelphia area. Um, I say typically we're bound within our conference because that's where my bishop has power. Mm-hmm. Occasionally folks can ask to be moved to mm-hmm. another conference. Sometimes that's kind of on loan. Um, I have a colleague who moved down to the, I don't know if it's just Florida in general or a Florida conference because of some health issues with his family. They need to be in a warmer climate. And so he's down there. Like he's, I think he's technically still a part of our conference, but he's kind of on loan down there. I have a deacon friend who is on loan to the West Ohio conference. Because while she grew up in western Pennsylvania, her dad is a pastor, a district superintendent currently in our conference. She, as a deacon, is working out there. So you can be on loan to another conference. Um, We just found out recently that one of our district superintendents who was on loan to us from the Baltimore-Washington conference has been called back to the Baltimore-Washington conference starting in July because technically that's her bishop. Like she's been serving under my bishop. But her bishop has said, you know what, I need you back here. And she was just kind of on loan from us from that conference. So, the short answer to your question, no. Um, Not likely. But if something came up that, you know, um, an extension call, you know, not an extension call, but, you know, like if I I was really into camping ministry or something, I want to be a camp director, like could I be appointed, I guess, yeah, extension ministry. You know, if I wanted to be appointed to something outside of the church, and they didn't have that position inside my conference, I could go to another conference. But typically, I'm not going to get a call from another conference to seek me out. Um, now, depending on which conference you're in, there are some of our conferences out west that are several states mm-hmm. yeah. in, in size because of just the lack of United Methodists out yeah. there. And so, could you be called from Colorado to Wyoming? Yeah. Um, but not that's not the case with my particular conference. Gotcha. This is, this, one of the things I'm, I'm discovering in this series, even just in the few minutes we've been doing it already, is this is one of those places where it is super clear to me that history and theology and the accidents of geography all overlap, that our mm-hmm. various systems aren't just, and it would be foolish to say, well, this is all a matter of theology. No, there's a certain amount of tradition that's a part of it, and that goes back to our history. And there's also a certain amount of how our geography in the place where we happen to live works out. That Yeah, you could be in a part of the United States where uh, a conference is this huge, vast territory. And in Lutheran traditions as well, there are places, because of how the United States was settled, where there's not as many people, so you've got a lot bigger geography to get a smaller number of people. And we, we have similar kinds of uh, issues that aren't about our theology, but are more about just the lay of the land, and that, that's affected our, our way of doing things. Yeah, like Texas has five annual conferences in it, mm-hmm. because Texas is a huge ring state. Yeah. And yet you've got like Colorado and like two other, two or three other states that are all one conference out mm-hmm. west. Yeah. Uh, Kentucky is now one conference, it used to be two. Yeah, yeah. We used to have, I think, four in Pennsylvania, because there used to be north and southwestern Pennsylvania. Yeah. So... So, with that introduction to the Methodist appointment system, Sarah, as the, as the person around the table who is most currently familiar with what, what the process is like for uh, folks in our branch of the Lutheran family tree, can you, can you talk about what the call process is like as, a, as, as an approach, as a model, and maybe points of similarity or contrast to what Erica shared about the, the appointment process? Yeah, so I have the, I don't, I don't want to say unique, because there's 
plenty of clergy couples, but I have experienced our call process in three different synods now. And every synod, which is similar to the United Methodist conferences, um, is different. We do not have a uniform call process um, throughout the ELCA. Like every synod is going to be a little bit different. Um, so I was first called right out of seminary to Western Iowa, um, you know, as a clergy couple with my husband. Um, so, you know, the church, when, when you first go out of seminary, the church kind of decides which synod you're going to go to, but you can like say, these are the synods I would prefer. And then it's like the NFL draft where all of the bishops come together and kind of like look at the different profiles and decide who gets whom. And so we had left it up to the church to decide if we were going to go to Iowa, which was where my family was from, or Pennsylvania, where my husband's family was from. And Western Iowa won. So we got the phone call in the middle of a class that, um, from the bishop of the Western Iowa Synod saying, congratulations, you're coming here. And um, that call, like, I had a very smooth call process. I was um, given paperwork from a congregation, and my husband was given paperwork for a congregation that was just down the road a ways. And um, this is paperwork like, um, so when, when we talk about paperwork in the ELCA, congregations have paperwork, which is this big long, like it's like 10 pages long of what, they're, what they perceive as their strengths and weaknesses, what their congregation, like some just stats on the congregation and on the town, you know, what is their context, what is their setting, what are they looking for in a pastor, how many years of experience, what um, are they, what is their budget like, what, um, what experience level of a pastor are they looking for, which usually gives you a good indication of their budget for compensation. <laughs> um, and so this was a very good, solid congregation. Um, I started interviewing with them. My husband just kind of was waiting to hear from his congregation. And finally he heard back that they weren't interested. And But at that point, I had gone so far down in the interview process that I had to ask my new bishop, hey, I think that this congregation and I are a really good fit. But Russ needs a call, too. He needs a job. Because in the ELCA, you can't get ordained unless you have a call. And the bishop said, if you feel called, you should accept this call. Like, if you think that God is placing you here, you should accept it. And so I did. And that ultimately meant that my husband wasn't able to get ordained for another two years. So um, he worked at Kohl's for a while. He worked as a... Um, synodically authorized minister, which meant that he could um, preach in a very limited context. He could do communion. Mm -hmm. um, so he did that for a while, but that doesn't ultimately count towards his years of experience for some odd reason in the ELCA. So like he has just kind of this weird year of where he was a minister, but was a pastor, but he wasn't ordained yet. And then finally he did get a congregation and he was ordained. Um, but this congregation, it was very much the last-ditch last effort of our bishop to keep us here, keep us in that place. And it was very much like, oh, they need a pastor, you need a church. 
they don't have paperwork because they just, like, their pastor just left. And usually it takes, like, a good nine months to pull together paperwork. And he was fine, like, but, so it wasn't a good fit because they were kind of just forced into this relationship. Um, so I had been in my call for three years. He had been there for a year. And we decided this isn't working. I just had a baby. I didn't feel like I had enough time to rest. So we decided that we were going to put in our mobility paperwork, our paperwork to like say this is who we are. We're looking for new calls. And I was going to go on family leave for a couple months to just rest and bond with the baby. And we, um, we were contacted by the bishop in our current synod, the Northwest Pennsylvania Synod, who said, hey, I like your paperwork. Um, you, your colleague is here who went to school with you and he's vouching for you. And so he brought us out and just drove us around the synod, which is something I've not heard of any other bishop doing, but that was his standard practice of before he would even entertain what churches to give you paperwork for. He wanted to get to know you and he would drive you around the synod and um, basically you were trapped in his car for like eight hours as he like pointed out different churches who may or may not have called pastors already. Some of them were looking, some of them had pastors. They wanted you to just know the synod. And so Russ interviewed with a church here and that is very much in the synod. It is you interview with the call committee for like one or two interviews and then you also do a trial preaching where you go to a congregation that is not their congregation, is not the current congregation you're serving. It's just a neutral site. Neutral site. <laughs> and you do a trial sermon and they kind of like, yeah, we like his preaching style or don't like his preaching style. And then they recommend you to church council. And then the church council interviews you. And then you have a congregational vote where the whole congregation votes on whether or not to call you as a pastor. Um, so he accepted that, and I was on family leave for a couple months. And then finally I said to the bishop, hey, I'm bored, and also we need more money to like feed our, our, our kid. So um, is there any openings for me? And he said, that there, no, there is not any full-time openings in your area. And I was like, ah, well, all right, is there part-time openings for me because every little bit of money helps and so he gave me two different options and what neither of which had paperwork which was interesting but um one of them sounded really really interesting it's the call I have now you know a big big town church a small country church and a campus ministry site all together um were he was going to try to form them as this new cooperative ministry, and I would have a clergy colleague. I'd be co-pastoring with somebody. Um, he would be quarter time. I would be three-quarter time. Um, and I like and so I like basically supplied. I was pulled the supply all summer for this congregation, and then they had a congregational vote. Like there wasn't really an interview. There was a question and answer time with the congregations, but like there wasn't really the formal interview process. There mm -hmm. wasn't paperwork exchange. Mm -hmm. They got to know me over the course of three months, and then they voted. Hmm. And um, so that was very interesting because it was very different than anything I've ever experienced before, and it's not the typical way. 
it was very much through the back door. Yeah. Um, and so that was very interesting. Um, and then this new hall process and this um, new synod, which is closer to Philadelphia, they're very, very, a very stickler for the process and for paperwork and for proper procedure. And so it's very, very, like, I did two to three interviews with the call committee. I did, um, because we're in pandemic times, I did trial preaching via Zoom with just them. And then they brought me out to do a very distant trial preaching in their sanctuary mm -hmm. um, where they all sat like super far away and then I had to stand in their pulpit and give a sermon. Um, and now they've recommended me to counsel. But in this synod, it's very, it's very much like online dating where when you're just talking to call committees, you could talk to as many call committees as you want and they can talk to as many candidates as they want. But then when you get to the point where I am now in my interview process where you're recommended to counsel, that's when you become monogamous. That's when you stop talking to anybody else. So they can no longer talk to any other candidates and I can't talk to any other congregations. Um, and then hopefully you, you interview with the council and then they recommend you to the congregation and you have the congregational vote. So it, it sounds like as far as like broad brushstrokes in the, the direction that Erica was talking about in the United Methodist, the, the process and discerning is happening higher up mm -hmm. and it's, we will tell the pastor and the congregation, here's the fit that we're going to make happen. In the uh, approach, in the, our, our branch of the Lutheran family tree, there's the congregation has a lot more input of do, do we want to call so-and-so, and they might be looking at a whole bunch of candidates, but the role of the higher-up church, the, the wider church structure is we can help you that go-between of giving you candidates that might fit what you think you're looking for. Some, uh, some synods, some areas might do that with a heavier hand of I'm only going to give you a certain set of candidates and others it'll be like you can look anywhere. Like I, I know in some of our traditions, some of our synods in our Lutheran tradition, some bishops will say I'm only going to give a congregation one name to consider at a time and others are like yeah you can look at any as many people as you want and as many candidates as you want. Um, and but but the the synod might the bishop might have a role in deciding how wide or small a list of possible candidates they might look at. Yeah, exactly. Because in Western Iowa, like first call pastors, you could only talk to one congregation and one candidate at a time. But as soon as you were done with first call, you could talk to as many as possible. Mm. In this synod, it's one on one. That's all you get. You just get one set of paperwork at a time. Whereas near Philadelphia, it's. It's a free-for-all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so is that at the bishop's discretion, at the senate's discretion? Like, whose discretion is it? Because, like, that, when the bishop changes in the senate, and then those rules change within that senate. I think it can change, but you have to, like, get other people on board. Because I know our senate that we're in right now in uh, Western Iowa, they are actually putting together a new call process manual. Mm. And I think that's because we have a new bishop. Yeah. Like, don't quote me on this because I haven't seen the manual, and I don't think we had a manual previously because uh, Bishop Jones was here just for forever, and so like that's the way he did it. And now we have a new bishop, and I think he's possibly either changing the way we're doing it or 
he's just finally like saying, hey, this is the procedure. Mm -hmm. um, there's no, you know, we don't really want to do getting pastors and congregations through the back door. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a process, let's stick with the process. Because yeah. he's very type A. So. And see, our book of discipline lays all that out for us. Mm -hmm. And those are part, I, I read that part of the discipline, but it's been a few years. Yeah. And, um, we should we should say too that in other denominations or branches of the Christian family tree, there are yet other kind of models. There are some that are even more tightly top down, like um, churches that uh, have a much much more um, em emboldened hierarchy. You know, so like in Roman Catholic traditions or Orthodox traditions, that's much more someone higher up, a, a bishop, an archbishop, does the appointing with whatever mechanism they choose, and there's probably even less wiggle room, um, because, especially, if you're, especially if you're in a tradition where priests uh, are not married, there's no question of you got to go where your spouse needs you for work. If no, you'll yeah. go where I say you've given up the, you know, you made the value go anywhere. Um, and then there are other traditions that are much, much, much more uh, to, to use a crude analogy like dating and where it's like almost down to a congregation just decides who they're going to hire and there's almost no involvement from wider church whether it's because they're in a tradition or denomination that doesn't have any value really for a wider structure or something like that or more congregationally based in their polity and their, their theology or things like that um, so it can range anywhere from it's a lot closer to a business choosing who they're going to hire and nobody else gets a say in it to someone far away who maybe have never darkened the door of your church made a decision about who comes to serve at your church because that's their role as a bishop or archbishop or something like that. And there are things ever in between them. I guess, to me, it feels like something that we need to say out loud. We'll probably revisit this throughout this series as we wrap today's is that despite all the different ways this happens and the ways we sometimes do fantastically at it in each of our roles as human actors in it and sometimes blow it and sometimes you do your best and you later look and go, that didn't work as well as we hoped. Um, we sometimes somehow dare to trust that God's at work in the process through it all. Um, and that, that, in a lot of ways to me, is a, is a bigger act of faith than believing in things like the resurrection. I mean, like, things that are all God's to handle, okay, I can believe God yeah. created a universe, but, like, the idea that God works through these human, fragile, sometimes fraught, you know, loaded with ways that we get it wrong and all that kind of thing, to say God's willing to basically get God's hands dirty, getting in that messiness, that's... That says something about the character of God, um, and that God's willing to take the flack, so to speak, when things don't go well. And that, like we still, we don't say, "Well, I guess God wasn't there." We, God was there, and we messed up. <laughs> um, not that God messed up, but somehow God's there, and we were doing our best, and somehow sometimes things don't work the way we hope they will. L like in human relationships, that there's not you go into you know uh, any kind of relationship hoping. You can, you know, bring the best out of one another, and sometimes that's great, and sometimes you struggle, and sometimes you figure out how to solve problems, and sometimes you don't. But like that, that, that's that doesn't change just because we're talking about church situations, I guess. Um, so I hope in further episodes, as we take a look more about what it's like to be in transition, we may spend more time talking about the ways our traditions handle things, but also we're going to be looking at how each of us in our lives, not only as pastors, but as folks who are part of congregational life, but in just all of our ordinary lives, deal with transition in those big moments, how we see God in them, how we deal with just the nuts and bolts of it, um, and maybe, too, how we see signs of uh, the God who brings death and resurrection among us um, can be in the midst of that, too. So we hope you'll join us here this Lent uh, for this series on transition in life and in ministry here on Crazy Faith Talk. See you.